Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. In Death on the River, best-selling true crime author Diane Fanning recounts a tragic kayak accident that left one man dead and his fiancée arrested for his murder. A dream getaway, a real-life nightmare. It seemed like the perfect romantic afternoon, a kayaking trip for two on the Hudson River, but it ended in tragedy when beautiful blonde Angelica Groswald called 911 to report that her fiancée, the handsome and athletic Vincent Viafor, had fallen into the choppy, frigid waters. Authorities assumed it was an accident, but when the bereft bride-to-be posted videos of herself doing cartwheels on social media shortly before Vincent's body was found, suspicions of murder rose to the surface. After hours of questioning, Angelica made several shocking admissions. She said she felt trapped and fed up with Vincent's demanding sexual lifestyle, the nightlife, the strip clubs, the three ways. I wanted him dead, she had said, even though she insisted that she didn't kill him. But as more lurid details emerged, including a $250,000 life insurance policy, a killer question remained. Did Angelica remove the plug of her fiancé's boat and knock away his paddle as he sank? The book that we're featuring this evening is Death on the River, a fiancé's dark secrets and a kayak trip turned deadly with my special guest, journalist and author, Diane Fanning. Welcome back to the program, and thank you so much for agreeing to this interview, Diane Fanning. It is a pleasure to be here talking with you again, Dan. It's an absolute pleasure to have you back on, Diane, especially uh, this book. Again, you've outdone yourself once again with Death on the River. Um, Let's talk about how you came to be the author of Death on the River. What brought you to this story? How did you come to be the author of Death on the River? Well, it seemed like uh, something that was very different and had a lot of questions to it. And uh, being the nosy person I am, I wanted to find answers. And so I started working on it. I took a trip up to Poughkeepsie and looked at the river. And I tell you, when you stand by the side of that river and look across to Bannerman Island, To me, it looked like a very forbidding distance to travel, and that was when the war was... Pardon me? Uh, The part was cut off. Sorry. I said that that when I looked across there, even though the river was calm at the time, it looked like a very forbidding distance. It's not something I would even think about trying. Yes, certainly. Well, let's get right to this, because as you do in the book, you take us right to this incident on April 19th, uh, 2015. So let's talk about Vincent Viafor, the 46-year-old, and his fiancée, Angelica Graswald, 
They, you write that they set off from their home in Poughkeepsie, New York, on the east side of the Hudson River with a pair of kayaks. Uh, tell us about yes. this planned trip and when it was, and tell us more about this as you do in the beginning of the book. This is a very beautiful spring day. It was early in the season for kayaking. It's one of those days that was so beautiful that it drove a lot of people into the outside and to enjoying the warmth and, and brilliance of the sun that day. And Vincent and Jessica were no exception. They packed up their kayaks and headed out. They stopped at a fast food place and got something to eat. And then they headed south and turned in to um, a wilderness park kind of area along the river, between the highway and the river. And it was a plum point where it was a good spot for setting the kayaks in the water to travel across. They went across to Bannerman Island, which is a very small island, but it has um, ruins of what was an arsenal, and it looks like a castle, and um, a once glorious mansion on on the island and it was a place that and on many times she uh, volunteered to work on the gardens there in warm weather did kayak before they went over to the island and Angelica had taken along some lingerie and she was trying it on and taking provocative pictures and uh, they had a nice afternoon Towards the end of the their trip over there, they tried to take the kayaks around the back of the island, but the um, island, the, the weather was starting to turn stormy, and they couldn't, because of the tide, get back there. So instead, they went back around and went back onto the island, but then they saw the ominous clouds that were rolling in. And the daylight was fading, and they decided that, yeah, maybe they better head on back. Well, the Hudson is a tidal river, so you get um, a lot of waves on it when the storm churns it up, and it turns very rough very readily. And they started heading back, and at first Vince thought it was a lot of fun. It was like riding rapids. And they were going back, and suddenly Vince was in trouble. His kayak had taken on water and was starting to sink. Next thing, he was in the water. The spring day had been very deceiving because the waters of the Hudson were still very cold. And when he fell in that water without a wetsuit on, hypothermia started to set in almost immediately. And they were uh, in the water. Angelica was still in her kayak, but Vince was losing control of all of his muscles, and it was becoming harder and harder for him to breathe. And for some reason, Angelica took his oar, his kayak paddle, and fastened it to the side of her boat. At one point, she said she took it away from him, and then she tried to walk back out of it and say he gave it to her. Whatever the case, she spent one half hour watching Vince struggle and before she called 911. And that is the most damning fact in this case, in my opinion, that she did nothing. If I were out on the water with someone I loved 
I most certainly would have done anything to try and save their life. I'd even risk my own to do it. Angelica didn't. She just sat in that kayak. And then while she was on the phone with 911, she said she couldn't see him anymore. And they told her to start paddling towards the yacht club. There was a boat coming out to rescue her. She started doing that, but when she saw the boat approaching, she intentionally overturned her own kayak. And when asked about that later, she said, well, I wanted him to think I had tried to save his life. But when the rescue boat went out, they brought in Angelica, but they could not find any sign of Vince. The... The information that you just mentioned about the 20 minutes, none of this information is known right away when she calls 911. Right from the very no, beginning is. of, right from the very beginning when she calls 911 and then this rescue unit comes out there, there are things that personnel notice immediately. Uh, can you tell us some of those things that they notice immediately in terms of her demeanor, behavior, and then how? slowly or quickly it unravels some of the inconsistencies that she says to different law enforcement officials. One thing that um, while, while they were still trying to rescue him and save his life, and she repeatedly said that she had dropped her telephone into the river, but while she was, um, being put on a gurney and being taken toward an ambulance, a police officer there heard a phone ringing in her bag. When he tried to look in her bag, she stopped him. She wouldn't let him look in her bag. And so that was one thing. Why wouldn't you let the police have that phone? That phone could have located the exact spot where Vince went into the water, but she wouldn't let them know that. And, um, she continued in that behavior after she was taken to the hospital. That same police officer went there, and he tried a couple of times to look in her bag, and she kept uh, sitting up suddenly looking at him and asking what he was doing. And it was interfering with her being treated for hypothermia because of her short time in the water. She already had uh, some symptoms of hypothermia. So that was something that was a bit disturbing. But it didn't really uh, immediately point to her as having done something wrong. Everybody was giving her the benefit of the doubt at first. Number one, there was the grief issue. Number two, she had just been... So although right away she was doing suspicious things, Everybody wanted to treat her as if she just lost a loved one. And she was treated very gently initially. But when she went down, uh, when they were doing the search for Vince along the river, she showed up not every day, but a lot of the days. And she was not really searching. She was treating it more like a party experience a social experience, and she was giving away items that belonged to Vince. Now, 
when you think somebody's just missing, you don't start giving their stuff away. It was very alarming to the people who overheard her, like Vince's sister. Something wasn't right. And they started out being supportive of her, but she totally chewed away at their lack of suspicion. The police, on the other hand, weren't hearing any of these things. And and even when uh, she said, we're going to have um, a, a, a get-together to um, remember Vince at the, his favorite restaurant, and she invited the police, they didn't go. And the people that were there were very disturbed by her behavior. She was around talking to everybody, acting happy. The the ex-wife of Vince was absolutely devastated. She was grieved, and it was the difference was stark. People could not understand how his ex-wife could be grieving so badly, and Angelica was Angelica rather was walking around acting like um, it was a big event all for her, and so. Uh, the friends and family were starting to have lots of questions. And Vince's sister even called one of the investigators to express her concerns after Angelica did a cartwheel in her backyard. It wasn't like she was grieving at all. You introduced some very, very fascinating characters. Detective DiQuardo, he's a state uh, police investigator that got a call from uh, Trooper Vitakovich, uh, who told him of the missing kayak, uh, missing kayaker. And so he had asked uh, Freeman to talk to Angelica. So this is the first person, and you talk about uh, Detective DiQuardo and his approach to Angelica and the questioning. Tell us what her reasoning or the reason for Vincent not having uh, not only a bodysuit in that in, in that time of the year, but also a life vest. What's her explanation? She said they only brought one with them, and Vince insisted that she wear it, which does sound like something Vince would do, but still it's odd that there was only one. Uh, Vince was an experienced kayaker. He knew he should have a, a, a life vest. So what happened to that other life vest? Um, that's a question that will probably never be answered because we can't ask this. So uh, she, she insisted that it was all because of Vince that he didn't have a life jacket. All he had was that little um, flotation device that doubled as a seat cover in the kayak. Right. You talked about that um, that the extensive search, an incredible search with professionals and volunteers and friends and family at some point, helicopters, um, different county police departments in working in cooperation with each other. But the Hudson River is problematic in them predicting where this body might turn up. And as a result, yes. this search continued for quite a while, didn't it? It did. It continued for weeks. And they, um, it was uh, 
very difficult because the Hudson is a tidal river, so that means it sort of changes direction. And and so um, when, like with a lot of bodies of water, you can trace the, the direction a body might go in be, because you can chart it. Well, the Hudson can't be charted so well because it could have gone either way. And so they had to keep broadening and broadening it. And they had helicopters. They had people walking along the shoreline. They had side-scanning sonar on a boat. I mean, they were doing everything they could to try to find his body. But part of the problem that Vince had with the water was the fact it was so cold. And that also provided a problem for the search because it isn't with the Hudson River uh, when when it gets so cold, bodies go down to the bottom, and they don't come up until the weather gets a little warmer. You talk about and include in this book that Angelica, her former name Angelica Lipska, you provide for us that she was born in Riga, Latvia, and you tell a little bit of the history of its relation with uh, Germany. Out to Germany, so let's talk about a little bit about uh, her upbringing, and especially the very, very interesting and, of course, relevant uh, former marriage and relationship background on Angelica. Yeah, she was raised in um, pretty uh, big situation of poverty. Uh, they, her family, didn't have much money, and uh, not personal goods because they were behind the Iron Curtain when Angelica was born. So they uh, they were just surviving, basically. When the Iron Curtain was lifted, things did get a little bit better as far as the hopefulness returned to the people. And it was when that happened that Angelica was able to start having dreams that she could believe might come through. And her big dream was to go to the United States. Um, Before the curtain lifted when she was around 10, nobody could count on ever doing that. And once it was up, she could dream of that. And when he got old enough, she immediately went and applied for a visa to go to the United States and started looking for jobs as a nanny. And she got one with family in New Jersey. And so she went over to the the United States with that job. She hadn't been there um, really long when this guy came in to repair the furnace. And Angelica and he hit it off right away. And before you know it, she was getting married, and um, and Sean was taking her away from her from her nanny job. That marriage didn't last very long at all. It was uh, tumultuous from the very beginning. It was too sudden, and they didn't really know each other. After that relationship ended, she uh, met a man who had uh, Richard Grasswald, who had a very prosperous concrete business. And uh, it was sort of the decorative concrete product available. And she was married to him. And when she got a job at the Franklin Delano Roosevelt 
museum digitalizing a lot of the records they had stored there. So she was going up to uh, the Presidential Museum and and working on making digital stuff that could go online. And she'd go into there and she would stay during the weekend and go home with her husband on the weekend. Well, by being there, she ended up going to a lot of the different bars in the area on her evenings off. And um, it was in doing that that she met another guy that she really liked. And she suddenly decided to leave her husband and she sent a message to this guy and said, hey, um, I'm leaving my husband. Well, he it was kind of odd that she, she would inform him of this because it, as far as he was concerned, she was just an occasional liaison. And then mm-hmm. much to his surprise, she comes and knocks on his door and says she's moving in. Well, yeah. he was kind of a really laid-back guy. So he thought, well, okay, she wants to move in. She can move in. No big deal. So that's what happened. And it was very strange because she kind of thought she should be a kept woman and he objected to that and he said she's got to get a job and even went so far as to buy her a car so she could get to work so we did that but then they went to this Beatles convention and he had to drink and because of that he couldn't perform sexually so as far as Angelica was concerned, because he couldn't do that on that one time, he was no longer a man. And she moved into yeah. a separate bedroom. And then um, met this other guy who was a photographer. And next thing you know, she's leaving the house she's living in and moving in with this guy's sister, that sister. And he... Uh, was then uh, kicked out of his sister's house because they didn't want him bringing other people in. So he and Angelica were living by the river in a tent. When uh, her former live-in decided he bought this car and he wants the car back, he doesn't want her driving it, they returned it. But then Angelica wanted the cat they had. And he said, you can't take a cat to live in a tent. And she insisted to the point of laying down in the driveway and refusing to let him leave go to work until he agreed to let her have the cat. So she took the cat. That didn't last long either. She ended up bringing the cat back because, yeah, living in a tent is not a good place to try to deal with a cat. So... um, then after him, I mean, I am I never could figure out exactly when he faded out out of the scene, but she went to take photographs at a fundraiser event that Vince was attending to, and that's where they met. And the two of them uh, kind of hit it off. He had a good job, so that was very promising to her, and um, she thought she had somebody else who might take care of her. And and Vince was smitten with this exotic, perky woman who spoke with an adorable accent. And before you knew it, he had gotten an apartment that she could move into with him. And his friends were shocked because 
it wasn't that long that his second marriage ended. And they thought that he was going to stay single for a long time. That's what he said he was going to do. He just wasn't going to settle down for a while. But there he was, settling down. And before long, he was proposing to Angelica. And they were going to get married. And what really shocked some of his friends was when he said, I want to have a child with her. Because he knew that was something he'd always said he didn't want to do. So they figured he must really be in love. There was also another thing that would be disturbing later when people found out. and But there was, according to Vincent, a reason for it. Even though they weren't married, he decided to put her and name her as a beneficiary on these insurance policies and put her yes, on his health care plan. And, and yeah, and he in at his work, when you're not married and you want to get um a live in partner put on your medical insurance, uh, you have to do a certain number of things to prove the commitment of the relationship. And one of them was to put her on his life insurance policy, and he did that uh, because he it bothered him that she didn't have any health care coverage, and he wanted her to. So that's what he did. And, um, it you know, it's kind of eerie. It's, it's almost like saying, okay, if you get somebody on your life insurance policy, don't let them know about it. You know, it's like like a little red flag because that is believed was part of her motivation for wanting Vince gone. What was she the, also complained like, about? What? Go ahead, sorry. She also complained about the fact that he went to strip clubs and the fact of the matter was there were others who knew that she had gone to strip clubs with girlfriends before. So it's not like that was something that was alien to her, although she tried to make it sound like it was. And then she talked about threesomes. Well, there was never any real clear message from her that the threesomes actually happened. So that leaves a big question. Were threesomes just a fantasy thing for Vince that he liked to talk about? Because it didn't seem like they ever actually went through it. And so just having a fantasy is not like you're doing anybody wrong. So, I, you know, it, a lot of what she said didn't make particular sense as, as the attack she was making on Vince. As you write in the book, Vince has a sort of um, oh, a bumpy past or we'll say a history that's not without incident, we'll say. Tell us a little bit about uh, Vincent's past and the characteristics of, of that. But overall, what is the impression from family and friends of Vincent? Vincent was a really, really nice guy. One of his problems was that he was generous to a fault. He would give people stuff. He would buy drinks for people at bars. He would let them borrow his car. He he was a bit of a spendthrift, 
but a lot of it was for others, not not for himself. And he did get into financial trouble and have to file for bankruptcy uh, because of the way he did not watch his money very well. Uh, So, you know, that, that, that was problematic. But it seems like he learned his lesson because in early April 2015, he uh, gave Angelica a, an ultimatum. Angelica had planned this wedding where they would go over to Latvia, marry on the beach there with their family around, and then they would come back to the United States and have a big party in a boat on the Hudson River celebrating their marriage. And so that's an expensive proposition. And Angelica hadn't been working for a long time now. And Vince said, you've got to get a job. You've got to work. And the marriage is off. He didn't want to get into all that debt again. He didn't want to go down that road. But Angelica was a little bit resentful of the fact that he expected her to work. Let's use this as an opportunity, Diane, just to stop for a second and talk about our sponsor, which is Shudder. AMC Network Shudder is a premium streaming video service, super-serving fans of all degrees with the best selection of horror and thrillers. Shudder's irrepressible and thriving community revels in all things provocative, evocative, and dangerous. From bantering with Shudder on social media and contributing fantastic, irreverent reviews, to relishing in member-only perks such as exclusive releases and VIP movie screenings. Shudder believes there is safety in numbers. Don't be left in the dark alone. You can stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense for $5.99 per month or $56.99 per year. Shudder has the largest, fastest-growing human-curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment, the Netflix for horror. There are new spine-tingling thrillers, shocking horrors, and edge-of-your-seat suspense added weekly. You'll have unlimited access to stream ad-free on all your favorite devices, like iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Xbox One, and so on. Shudder has a unique collection of exclusive and original films and series, horror classics, and blockbuster hits. The first, uh, Stan's Lee, Stan Lee's Lucky Man was the first thing that I watched. Um, there are two seasons. In episode one, More Yang Than Yin, really knocked me out with this Detective Harry Clayton as a cop from London's Murder Squad. There are so many interesting movies and series, documentaries, uh, such as AMC Visionaries, director Eli Roth's bringing together all the masters of horror movie making, in-depth look at horror's roots, very, very interesting. Uh, Discovery of Witches, another a Shudder original. Uh, Puppet Master, another Shudder exclusive. AMC Shudder offers an incredible amount of programs, an extensive international library, a range of genres and types of movies from classics to today's favorites. To try Shudder free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com and use promo code slash true. That's Shudder. S-H-U-D-D-E-R. To try Shudder free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com and use promo code slash true. S-H-U-D-D-E-R. Shudder.
Now, Diane, when we last left off, we were talking about Vincent and the situation that had changed where she believed, Angelica believed that she was going to get married. Now they go on this trip, and now the police, DeCuardo is questioning her. You, let's get back to this masterful attempt to try to get this woman to come and tell the truth about what really happened that day in April 2015. What happens next in this incredible search and case? Well, it was Saturday, and um, the police went out to uh, the island, and um, they were searching around the island, going around the edges, making sure the body hadn't ended up there on the island, and, and just getting a feel for the place. Angelica also came there that day, and she brought a wreath to put on the water in Vince's memory. When she arrived, the police were talking to her, and all there were three of them there, three investigators, and they were all talking to her. And then a little ways into it, it became clear that she was getting um, uncomfortable because some of the information she wanted to talk about seemed to be personal. So they let her go off with the quarto to talk to him alone, and he was her choice for the one to talk to alone. And uh, she told him that she had removed the plug from the kayak, that she had taken the ring off his paddle, which held the two halves of it together, and that... Um, you know, she was very unhappy with the relationship and wanted to be free. Well, DeCorto realized the significance of what she was saying and wanted to take her back to the barracks, and she agreed to go back there for further questioning. She went and told the other officers, and they all got onto the boat. Um, and Angelica didn't protest. She wasn't handcuffed, nothing. She went right on the boat with them, and as they pulled away from the dock, she laid back in the wind and shouted, I'm free, I'm free, which was a kind of odd thing to say considering the circumstances. But sure. uh, she drove back to the, uh, the, the police barracks with the, the state investigators and went into an interrogation situation. She was at asked about her Miranda rights. The whole thing was read to her. She signed them away and agreed to talk to them. And um, she went on and on about her relationship with Vince and how she felt he was too controlling and she wanted to be free and she wanted him to be gone. And it was just stunning. To the police, it was a confession that she had deliberately caused Vince's death. To her attorney later, it was not a confession. And he said when she asked who's Miranda, that, that meant she did not understand the Miranda warning. But actually, if you listen to it in context, she was merely asking a historical question, like, why is it named after Miranda? What does that mean? So um, the, the, the defense was 
really clever in trying to make it look like she had limited understanding of English, but she'd been working in the public and, you know, working as a waitress, working as a hostess, working as a bartender, and she never had any communication problems with any of those people. And besides that, she had gone to community college and graduated with honors in English. So obviously, language proficiency wasn't really a problem for her. Uh, And the whole thing was portrayed by the defense attorney as an accident. But what she said to the police did not make it sound like an accident at all. It sounded like she very opportunistically took advantage of a deteriorating weather situation and did not come to the aid of Vince. And she actually said, he's gone, he's dead, and I'm glad. You have an incredible amount of exchanges in here, amount of exchanges between DiCardo and other interrogators when they're and then there's Sharkis um, and there's DeQuarto with different approaches and she responds to the, each of these detectives differently but it's incredible yes. the amount of time that is used utilized to hammer home to try to get to the specifics because it's circumstantial case to a certain degree to try to get her to admit like you say and you write She's once she says she wanted to be free. She was tired of the demands that he gave upon her. She they eventually get her to agree, uh, admit that she was mad that that the engagement that she wanted to have children. She wanted to get married, and it looks like the marriage was not going to happen. So that's what the police in in that interrogation room over a period of days were trying to do, till they believed in their minds that securely they had enough information to be able to present to the prosecutor, and that prosecutor finally filed charges for second-degree murder and for manslaughter, interestingly. Yes, Um, and I think it was in some states you're allowed to include lesser charges, and New York State is one of those. So that, and that's for the purpose if the, if the, the jury has difficulty seeing second-degree murder, there's a lesser charge you can fall back on. But this thing, the, the big legal confrontation in this whole case was not a trial. It was the hearing to determine whether or not her statements to the police could be uh, submitted as as evidence in a trial, and the defense was fighting against that tooth and nail. And there were five days of, of, of testimony on that question, and that was really the pivotal question uh, if they went into a trial. I, I don't see how the prosecution could have gone forward if they were denied admitting that tape from the interrogation into the trial. So it was very, very important, and it was five very tense days of questioning. In the end, the judge agreed that it could be submitted at trial, 
and now you had a defendant who wasn't sure they would win, and you had a prosecution who had a largely circumstantial case and a kind of vague confession. Because both sides were not confident in the win, it was then that plea bargaining bargaining started. I would I would say that what what I saw in this what I read in this as well is that he didn't have a public defender and at a very very interestingly there was a a question and I guess to to, to shock our audience further in that that this insurance claim under New York state law if there were a murder or a manslaughter um, it wasn't clear cut that the the person like like someone like Angelica would not be available. Those uh, payout in insurance would not be available to her. It's not clear cut, and this and we this is a, an important issue later when we find out um, that at one point Angelica said that she would not be uh, petitioning or trying to get any of the proceeds from those insurance policies. But that changed. Tell us about uh, state law in terms of whether it's even possible for someone like Angelica to collect on those insurance policies despite conviction. Well, it was real clear that you could not if there was a felony conviction. And so that, that became a big concern to the attorney because the defense attorney – had a document from her where she signed over anything she got from the insurance would automatically go to the defense attorney. Um, and he was saying that it was about a million dollars is what it, what charges were accrued in, in presenting her case. So um, the attorney more than Angelica had a vested interest in getting that life insurance. And so he very carefully went to uh, uh, Pardon me. Sorry. You talk about his his approach in this in terms of uh, gaining that money and we and you as you write in the book what we talk about is that uh Richard Portal and Jeffrey Charche uh, the second attorney, it ended up that that they were talking about a plea bargain. Um, they were talking about a plea bargain at this point when the family of Vincent Viafor and all the friends thought that there was going to be this, uh, finally, eventually, this going to be this trial of this woman that they thought had admitted to having something to do with, everything to do with, Vincent Viafor dying in, in that in those waters that day on the Hudson River. Um, tell us a little bit more about this, how it comes to be, other than the pressure from these very, very uh, capable lawyers, why this had to end in a plea agreement, and what was that plea agreement? The plea agreement was um, reached because there of the uncertainty of a conviction. Prosecutors 
do not want to let someone totally walk free. And with a jury, that is always a risk. And uh, they were uncertain if they could get a, a conviction on either the second-degree murder or the manslaughter. And because of that uncertainty, they worked with the defense to have a plea agreement that would get her at least some time in prison. And they came up with um, a lesser homicide charge of negligence, a negligent homicide. And Unfortunately, with that, it had never gone to court to see if the laws that prevent someone from inheriting insurance money would uh, hold up in a in a charge that a lesser charge like that. And it was thought that it would, but that apparently was a mistaken thought because she ended up benefiting indirectly from getting life insurance money. It did go to her attorney, but it it did not all go to the family. They got some of it, but so did Angelica. I found it interesting, uh, and again, I hate to beat up on attorneys because everybody will say, oh, they're just doing their job, but th- this one was extraordinary in that it at least was allowed for Angelica to make it make people believe including the family of vincent's family that she wouldn't go after that money and then conveniently that and we don't know as you write we don't know exactly how much she received but all of that money went to the lawyers and like you say it was a million dollars worth of defense and what i read in this as opposed to say a duty council representation in this kind of case regardless of how experienced that lawyer is that this lawyer for money, in effect, for money, basically uh, accomplished something that I think the reader would find incredible and unbelievable. There was no proof of a coerced confession. There was no proof that she couldn't understand English. In fact, she was very fluent in English. There was no proof that, but these are the, the best charges that they could lay on her was this criminal negligence causing the death of this person. But everybody in that court, from every impact statement and even the statements from the judge, clearly this woman was far more guilty than those charges. Yes, and and I really, I I think, I I, sometimes I think defense attorneys go too far. I do not have a problem with them, them trying to convince people that there was a coerced confession because that's kind of a subjective kind of thing but he lied about her English and you know he he lied when he said at the at the at the end of the plea bargain uh, thing in the courtroom he said that Angelica has no intention of going for that money and I think that's just what he wanted to say to set things up so everybody would be comfortable with the deal. And it was later that they they submitted the paperwork to go for that money. And I think that was a little sleazy, to be honest. Yeah. The other thing is that 
despite warnings and a gag um, a gag order, both uh, defense attorney and Angelica made public media appearances, didn't they? Did yes, and um, you know, the defense attorney the first time said, "Oh well." I'm sorry. I mean, the gag orders were on the attorneys. They weren't specifically on Angelica. And so when she had a second national appearance scheduled to do an interview, uh, the the attorney uh, wanted to be there like he had been for the first one. But the judge said, no, you can't be there. If she wants to make a statement to the media, we can't take away her First Amendment rights, but you can't be there. We have a gag order. But, you know, he did violate it once, and I think he would have continued to violate it until the judge told him no. It's interesting, too, post-conviction, what does she maintain, again, in, in the media? After this sentence, and again, she was looking at 15, and the families were hopeful, 15 to, to life, 15 for, or to the rest of her life. And this was, the deal was, unfortunately, disappointingly, 15 months to four years. Yes, and she had also got credit for time served. So um, yeah. it, it ended up that she'd only spent a couple months in, in prison, and and. It was really unfair to the memory of Vince. It was not justice for his family. And it and she's going around saying, Oh, she loved him and it was just an accident. You know, it, it it's just annoying after all the things she said, uh, to uh to try to make him look bad and to try to make her look good. And it is you know, pick on victim time, and and it it angers me. Um, none of us are perfect, but none of us deserve to be trash after we've been killed, either. But she's protesting her love for him, and and it kind of reminds me of that song by Amy DeV years back that says, "Killing you doesn't make love go away." Yeah, you write also. Again, it's not a quest for justice, but people are looking for some kind of recourse from the courts. October 27, 2017, Vince's family files a wrongful death suit against Angelica and State Supreme Court, Judges County. As of now, yeah. what is the status of that? I think that it's all been wrapped up, and it was wrapped up in... Um, some sort of agreement with how insurance money would be divided. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the, 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 the family realized it was kind of futile because none of the insurance money was ever going to go to Angelica anyway, so she couldn't give it back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. For this book, you as usual, and this is the 14th or the 15th true crime book that you've written. 15th, yes. Yes, 15th. Congratulations. Who are the some of the people that you had access to that, I think I can answer this question, but I'm asking you, what, what are the, some of the people, 
some of the characters that were essential that you had access to to really be able to write this book? Sean Van Kloss, who was a lifelong friend of Vince, was extremely helpful to me in um, giving me a, a, a lot of information and and a lot of just stories about Vince. And um, and another person who was very helpful was his mother. And uh, that I'd say those two probably were the biggest help of all in in discovering exactly who Vince was. And, you know, he was really a good guy. And, you know, he wasn't perfect. But he was good to his friends. He had so many friends. It was just unbelievable. From elementary school on forward, everywhere he went, he made friends. He was crazy and irreverent, and he'd, he did funny dance moves, and he brightened everybody up. And he gave his friends good advice. He'd sit down and talk to them heart to heart and try to help them. And he just was a good guy. What's interesting too, you talk about he's such a good guy, and there's and in your book is really, um, I think I think anybody involved with Vincent would be happy with the depiction of him. But what's interesting and disturbing really is that the media were able to attend this this hearing, um, and yet you get a February 2018-2020 updated show about Angelica's case, and Richard. Portell was interviewed, the defense attorney, and he talked about the missing gun. So again, we—I don't want you to harp on this, but oh, that isn't is this interesting so that after the fact he's still still trying to cast doubt on his client's guilt, but using such a—I don't know—defenseless ploy, don't you think? Yeah, missing it's gun? A, the, the gun. The answer was very simple. The missing gun was still with his ex-wife, and it, so it wasn't really missing. Um, it just wasn't in the house that he shared with Angelica. And, um, you know, he, he's saying that, you know, that's why the police were searching the island. No, it wasn't. Um, they'd already established where that gun was before they ever went out on the island. And I'll tell you right now, from talking to those investigators, and uh, it it's really clear that if they had ever thought that a gun had been used in the death of Vince, they would have been out to that island lickety-split. They just went back there basically grasping for straws that they could find on that island that could answer the questions they had. But if they thought a gun was involved, that would have been the first place they went. Mm -hmm. As... uh seemingly psychopathic as this person Angelica is it is also interesting when you look at everything and the end result that if she were to be a little bit more careful a little a little smarter about things we wouldn't know even the three quarters of the truth that we know today wouldn't we no in fact Dan if she had put up a semblance of genuine grief and acted like it mattered to her that when Vince was missing, that it mattered to her when Vince, when she found out Vince was dead, if she acted just a little bit, 
No one would have ever uh, thought that there was a problem, that it was anything but an accident. But it was her behavior and the things she said to police that that brought the uh, the eyes of justice down upon her. She brought that on because she was carrying the guilt. She knew she'd done wrong by him, and she couldn't even fake it. It was interesting, too. She got a photographer because, of course, she was interested in photography and how how she met some of these people through some of her interests, singing, playing guitar, um, and uh, so anyway, with this, uh, she uh, what was I saying? She definitely was interested in the attention that she got, and, and as a result, she said things and did things, and the cartwheel um, in the backyard was one thing, but she took another photo of a cartwheel. Again, you say cartwheels are expressing some kind of joy and kind of the opposite of what you should be feeling. But she also posted a strange photo from this photographer of her paddling a kayak with the Bannerman Island, the, the crime scene, in the background. I thought that was one yeah. of the most interesting visuals. That is an eerie picture. You know, it 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 just speaks so much of the danger and that she would put that up at that time uh, really was disturbing. And she just, you know, I, I, I don't understand a lot of what she did. And to be honest, trying to understand the motivation of a sociopath is difficult. Try to understand uh, how someone can uh, be so consumed by narcissistic feelings is hard to understand. So I guess it's it's good that I don't understand it, or maybe that would say something ugly about me. But it, yeah. it's still, you know, it's hard to wrap your mind around uh, how a sociopath's mind works. And it's it's very disturbing and and very tragic. I, you know, Vince should still be around. He should still be with us. He should still be giving his mother a hug on Mother's Day. And the fact that he isn't is is just tragic. Yes. Well, we certainly do get a very vivid glimpse into the into a sociopathic killer's mind. I want to thank you very much, Dan, for coming on and talking about Death on the River, a fiancé's dark secrets, and a kayak trip turned deadly. For those people that might want to look at other work, uh, we talked about this being your 15th true crime book, but 26 books overall, or 27. Uh, Is there a website, Facebook page they might take a look at? My website is dianefanning.com, and um, I am facebook.com slash dianefanning. I have uh, my regular page, and I also have a true crime books page they can look up. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Diane. It has been an absolute pleasure talking about Death on the River. You have a great evening, and I know we'll be talking to you again real soon. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Bye-bye. Good night.